Support for this podcast is brought to you by Allergan, whose R&D in eye care is advancing innovation in the treatment of dry eye, glaucoma, and retinal conditions, bringing proven eye care products to patients like yours. Learn more at Allergan.com. Allergan has not reviewed and does not have control over the contents of this podcast. My name is Justin Schweitzer of Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and it is my honor and pleasure to be joined by Dr. Ben Gaddy of Gaddy Eye Centers in Louisville, Kentucky, and Dr. Nate Radcliffe of New York Eye and Ear Infirmary. I really appreciate the two of you joining us and looking forward to the conversation we're going to have on the landscape of glaucoma treatment. We really have more options than ever before to treat glaucoma, and I'm going to discuss a lot of these options with Dr. Gaddy and Dr. Radcliffe. Uh, But before I dive into that, I just really wanted to do a quick review on the traditional glaucoma medications that still many of us are using today. I know there's a lot of new medications that have come into the market, but really the tried and true ones that we continue to use a lot of times as first-line agents continue to be our our prostaglandin analogs. And those those main medications are used uh, mainly to increase uveoscleral outflow in our primary open angle glaucoma patients and many other situations that we run into with our glaucoma patients. We also have our adjunct agents such as beta blockers, which are aqueous suppressants, our alpha adrenergic agonists, which are aqueous suppressants as well as increase some uveoscleral outflow, our carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that do aqueous suppression, and then our fixed combination agents that really serve a couple purposes. Number one, they're very efficacious because of the fact there's two medications in this fixed combination setting. And also when we're dealing with compliance issues, we know that patients don't use their glaucoma medications, medications correctly. And if we can get less bottles in our patient's hands, hopefully that means more compliance. When I think of glaucoma, I think of it as a very artful eye disease. And with new glaucoma agents coming onto the market, to me, it's become more artful than ever before. In a few minutes here, I'm going to discuss with Dr. Gaddy and Dr. Radcliffe different types of medications, what types of patients these medications may be ideal for, when we should prescribe them in certain situations, such as patients that have normal tension glaucoma, patients with open angle glaucoma secondary types of glaucoma. With these new agents coming onto the market, to me, glaucoma is becoming even more of a thinking disease because it's not just grab that first agent that's sitting in our cabinet and put it on a patient. We have to think through these different glaucoma situations to add to that. So with that being said, I want to start with talking to Dr. Gaddy about what's new in glaucoma treatment and also what's coming down the pipeline in regards to glaucoma drug delivery. And so with that, Dr. Gaddy, I'd like to start with discussing the new glaucoma drug class, the Royal Kinase Inhibitors. And can you tell us a little bit about what they are, the efficacy of them, the safety, and the types of patients that you typically target for these agents? Yeah, thank you, Justin. And uh, hello, Dr. Radcliffe. Uh, Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, it is exciting because for the first time since 1996, when latanoprost or Zalatan was brought to market, we have a completely new compound of medicines. And in a minute, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about Visolta, 
which also is, uh, I guess, technically new with the uh, chemical linking of the organonitrate to latanoprost. But <clears throat> let's start first with um, with the rokinase. And the rokinase, they're, they're small protein rokinase rock inhibitors. And this work was the uh, brainchild of uh, uh, David Epstein, who uh, unfortunately passed away before he saw his life's uh, work uh, come to be. Uh, in the marketplace, but it's been a long time coming, and it's really right now about outflow. If you think about all the other mechanisms of action of glaucoma medications, being uh, namely uveal scleral outflow, as you mentioned, or suppression of aqueous uh, production with the beta blockers and topical CAIs and adrenergic agonists, et cetera, um, <clears throat> the one thing that really has been missing from our treatment, uh, you know, if you want to target certain pathways or mechanisms of action of treatment in glaucoma has been trabecular outflow. Now, we've had pilocarpine as a historical medication. Um, I'm sure we all have a couple of patients still on it for various reasons, but um, it wasn't a true relaxation of the trabecular cells to facilitate flow. It was more of a mechanical pulling, uh, and that's what led to a lot of the side effects of pilocarpine. So now we have two agents uh, that work in the directly in the trabecular meshwork, and that's pretty exciting. Uh, for a multitude of reasons, especially when you consider the fact that many of our patients, we've exhausted all the traditional uh, mechanisms of action or routes of <clears throat> treating glaucoma, it's nice to have uh, something else, a, a different pathway to tap into. So with that, uh, Ropressa, or uh, Natarsidil, is the chemical name of the base molecule uh, Ropressa, and we also now have the combination of uh, Latanoprost plus uh, uh, Natarsidil, which is uh, Roclitan. I'll get to that in a minute. But this drug, uh, this drug essentially works by increasing trabecular outflow facility and also episcleral venous pressure, uh, which is something else that really is not hit on uh, on any of the other current glaucoma medications. It has uh, a, a third effect, which is a really a differentiator from the, uh, the uh, organonitrate drug, and that is it has a norepinephrine transporter effect. And this uh, also decreases aqueous production. Uh, so this causes direct relaxation of the trabecular meshwork cells via a nitric oxide uh, signaling. And I know that sounds kind of strange, and we're going to talk about the, uh, the nitric oxide agent uh, with Visolta, but ultimately, both of these medications work on the same pathway. Uh, Ropressa works a little bit downstream, so it downstream, it affects the nitric oxide signaling via cyclic GMP. And uh, so really, you're getting a drug that has three effects. It has an aqueous production re uh, uh, suppressor. It has an increase in episcleral venous pressure and uh, mainly has a uh, trabecular outflow facility effect, direct relaxation on those trabecular cells. It did get approved uh, last year in 2018, and uh, the drug is uh, non, excuse me, it is non-inferior to Timbalol, and on average, about a millimeter less IOP lowering than Latanoprost in, in head-to-head uh, studies. And so uh, there was some concern that the IOP response for patients that um, had higher intraocular pressures might not be as significant as patients that had lower or normal uh, to slightly elevated IOP. Uh, what it turned out to be is that uh, the, the pressure lowering effect of Ropressa is the same in both populations. 
the difference is, is latanoprost actually is, uh, has some variance in how it works in the low and high pressure subgroups. Um, so again, about a millimeter less than we saw with uh, latanoprost. So if you have a patient that was non-responsive to a PGA or couldn't tolerate a PGA, this is a nice once a day option. Uh, the side effect profile is um, significant to know, and we do experience these. I experience them, you know, uh, every day in clinic to, uh, to some degree. And uh, the most common one is redness, and it's not just conjunctival hyperemia like we're used to seeing with maybe a PGA. Uh, there is some of that uh, dilation effect, but there's also some small petechial uh, subconjunctival hemorrhages that occur with this medication mainly very small. They tend to be limbal. And so you really can't tell that it's a, a petechial hemorrhage until you use higher magnification and look at your slit lamp. But uh, there are reports, and certainly I've seen a couple of some larger subconjunctival hemorrhages, which can uh, really concern the patient. So it behooves the practitioner to uh, educate the patients about the potential side effects. So if they occur, they know that they're not unexpected necessarily. Uh, the second one that we see is um, some reduced uh, visual acuity. Somewhere in the 8 to 10% range of patients will notice a reduction in vision. And I think it is a direct effect of the medication. Uh, those patients where we stop the medication, the vision seems to recover fairly quickly, and it's not terrible reduction in acuity, but maybe one or two lines uh, of actual acuity. The third one that we're seeing is corneal verticillata, and we think this is a phospholipid accumulation effect, uh, kind of like what we see with some of the um, uh, cardiac uh, rhythm-related drugs. And uh, it it is pretty pronounced when you see it. I think the rate is somewhere uh, just under 20%. I'll get to those numbers in just a minute. But as a practitioner, it can really catch you off guard uh, to go from seeing a perfectly normal cornea to one that, that has a nice stamp on it. Um, it does not uh, seem to affect visual acuity, uh, although I will tell you anecdotally that those patients that seem to have reduced acuity almost always have the verticillata. I do have plenty of patients that have the verticillata that don't have reduced or, or altered the visual acuity. So those are the uh, three main ones that we talk about when we uh, talk to patients about this. And so Roclitan was just approved uh, this spring, and it really is uh, it could be a marquee product if you think about the fact that it's the first drug with four mechanisms of action. So we already went over the other three with Natarsidil or Repressa. Now you add in the latanoprost molecule combined with it, all being once a day, and with the uveal scleral outflow pathway being targeted there, now we have all four really known mechanisms that we could practically treat glaucoma in a once-a-day drop. So also very uh, appealing as a practitioner, a busy practitioner. You have patients on multiple medications, one of which is a prostaglandin. Uh, and could be any other number of medications as a secondary agent, it makes a lot of sense intuitively to, to try an agent like this at once a day that could have the highest potential for maximum IOP lowering. The only other side effect uh, I'll note with the uh, Roclitan is the pH is fairly low and patients are complaining of stinging. So I've started to instruct patients to expect a little bit of burning and stinging around installation. That seems to help uh, squelch some of the uh, calls that we get on it. But nonetheless, you can imagine the addition of the prostaglandin. We're seeing 
you know, outstanding drops in intraocular pressure uh, and able to get patients to target pressure uh, readily. So that is, uh, I kind of think, my summary of the Rokinase uh, products. Do you have any specific questions I could answer or experiences I could speak to? Ben, that was a great overview of, of the Rokinase inhibitors. You know, for our practice, the way that these have really fit in is we're finding out we're delaying surgery uh, more often than ever right now because, uh, you know, these medications are going to allow us to, to try something new. Do you, do you feel like uh, these will serve that role where uh, it's really changed how we medically manage our patients? We're going to be able to delay surgery a bit longer uh, because, you know, it's a completely different drug class. We're not talking about another prostaglandin. We're not talking about another beta blocker. This is something totally different acting in a totally different manner. Well, yeah. I mean, as you say, if if you have someone on Roclitan, for example, and uh, then you, if you need to add something, you could add a, uh, you know, a combination agent, one of the currently available combination agents, you know, uh, beta blocker, bromonidine combo, for example. And although it's it's a redundant mechanism mechanism of action, it does give you some flexibility to add some other combination agents and potentially get, you know, four or five uh, different drug activities going on at one time with, you know, once or twice a day administration. It reduces the burden of the number of medications patients are taking. I think that's ultimately what drives us to, you know, refer a patient for uh, incisional surgery is, look, the, you know, they're progressing is usually the, the number one reason, or we just can't get the IOP to target no matter what we do. And uh, now I think this will give everyone flexibility to, to try and hang on as long as possible before we have to go to surgery. It's really changed the definition of maximum medical therapy uh, in the market today. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks. Let's move on and talk a little bit about a new prostaglandin, which uh, we're all very familiar with, and that you had mentioned already, Ben, is uh, Visalta. You want to tell us a little bit about the efficacy, safety, and, and patient types you target for this type of agent? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, Visalta, as I mentioned, is an organonitrate, and it's chemically linked to latanoprost. And what that means is, um, I don't know if the listeners are aware, but when you put a drop like a prostaglandin in the eye, um, it becomes the active agent of the free acid once it crosses the cornea and it's uh, metabolized by corneal esterases. Uh, and in this case, it gets cleaved into the free acid of latanoprost, but also the nitric oxide, moiety. We think, if you think back to what is nit nitrates, what do we use them for in healthcare? Uh, there's quite a few different uh, applications, but one that I think helps uh, doctors understand the relationship to glaucoma might be a uh, nitrate that you use under sublingual, uh, in a sublingual manner uh, for, for chest pain or angina. And that's where the reason you take it is it acts very quickly and it helps relax smooth muscle uh, contractility. And that obviously is around in the chest and the heart and everything else. Uh, if you think about it in the eye, uh, nitric oxide it could be targeted in the trabecular meshwork, again, to relax that smooth muscle, uh, the, the contractility in the trabecular meshwork. And that's indeed what we think happens uh, with Visalta. So uh, just a little ba a basic background science on it. Uh, nitric oxide in the eye, we believe that you know glaucoma could actually be a disease of deficient uh, intrinsic nitric oxide. So all of us have nitric oxide activity going on within the eye. And some animal studies have suggested that there could be an inherent kind of lower baseline level of nitric oxide. Uh, 
uh, in glaucoma patients. And so what this nitrate does um, <clears throat> basically is that if, if you were to take, and, and Lou Pasquale up in New York has taken rats and basically put them in a nitric oxide chamber and with no other IOP lowering medicines and controlled them to, or compared them to a control that did not receive a nitric oxide inhalation chamber. And actually the nitric oxide seemed to impart a one to two millimeter reduction in the IOP by itself. They've also done knockout mice models where they knock out the nitric oxide uh, receptor and uh, compared to rats that do have this receptor type. And it, it appears to have a nominal but significant effect on IOP. Uh, and what happens basically is you get an upstream uh, nitric oxide signaling uh, uh, enhancement, if you will, by activating cyclic GMP. It works a little more upstream and a little more directly on the trabecular uh, endothelial cells than the rokinase uh, family, but they both basically work uh, on the same pathway, just one more upstream and one more downstream. So with that, uh, the side effect profile is much simpler with Fisolta because it really is just the side effect profile of prostaglandin. And uh, I really have found no other uh, side effects that I could speak to that would be unique to this agent versus a regular prostaglandin, except maybe a little bit of burning and stinging on installation. Uh, but aside from that, you get kind of that safety profile that we're all familiar with and fairly comfortable with, uh, with maybe uh, one to two millimeters of additional IOP lowering over latanoprost by itself. So that's my uh, summary on that one. Yeah, great overview uh, and summary on that as well. And I think you make a good point at the end there is the one to two millimeters of mercury more uh, may not seem like a lot, but if you can keep a patient on a monotherapy, if they're on a latanoprost and, and switch them to something like a Visalta and keep them on that monotherapy, we, we're only helping our patients from a compliance standpoint because as we know, as you add medications, more bottles, uh, the less likely those patients are to, to take those medications correctly. Finally, uh, as we move into uh, drug delivery, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. And, and I already mentioned this, but we know that compliance is an issue within our glaucoma patients. And there's a lot of research being done currently in glaucoma drug delivery. And we're getting close to seeing some of these procedures and some of these devices being approved. And I wanna ask you, Ben, how do you see glaucoma drug delivery fitting in with the treatment options we have available? Or just in general, how do you see glaucoma drug delivery fitting into our, our treatment paradigm of glaucoma patients? Well, I see two perspectives on it. One is obviously to do everything we can to help the patient. Um, and, I, and I think that some of these uh, programs have potential to be very, very beneficial, especially in the compliance arena and hopefully in the cost arena as well, because we know cost and financial burden of medications uh, ultimately affects compliance as well. So, uh, you know, that's a, a before I even discuss drug delivery, I think it's important to throw out there that just like new medications, they're great. They may really help a lot of people, but if you don't have access to them, um, it, it causes a problem. And that's something that all of us, the three doctors on here that see patients every day, have to deal with. Uh, but with that being said, I, I think the Bimatoprost SR uh, program is uh, probably, you know, the furthest along through the FD, phase three trials. Um, the efficacy and the data um, is very impressive. Uh, I, I think really 
the biggest question I have besides access to the, to the procedure, to the medication at a, an affordable manner is how many patients are going to voluntarily uh, have an intracameral injection uh, for glaucoma, uh, something that maybe they could do an SLT for or uh, some other type of uh, procedure during cataract surgery or the Omni procedure. There's other things I guess you could do, and uh, are patients going to have a good feeling about being injected in the eye? You know, I've asked every single AMD patient that I have that's gone for a VEGF injection, and most of them, as you know, have to have them frequently, if not, you know, a couple times a month, uh, at least once every two to three months. Now, I have yet to find a patient that's really complained about having the intravitreal injection. So it's really shocking to me because it's like my worst nightmare to see a big, long needle coming <laughs> right into my eye. But uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, as long as it's not painful and uh, it, it works and there's not a lot of hubbub around the actual delivery of it, I think that it'll be more successful than I initially thought. Um but at the end of the day, we got to find a way to get this medication inside the eye. And I'm sure Dr. Radcliffe has some, uh, has some comments about that. But the one I'll talk about just briefly that has to do with optometry would be the ocular ring uh, from Allergan. And it's, uh, you know, this is a, a, a eluding ring that almost looks like a rubber band that you put around the globe. Uh, at the slit lamp or even just sitting in a chair, you could do it freehand almost. Um, and it eludes uh, bimatoprost for uh, approximately three months. Uh, they're working on the different release metrics, but this would be one where you could come in and kind of get, get the tire changed every uh, three to six months and put in a ring and the patient doesn't have to worry about compliance as much. We found that uh, the studies have shown it to be not quite as efficacious as putting an eyedrop of bimatoprost in, but uh, pretty good given the improvement in the, in the compliance profile. So with that, I feel like I've been talking the whole time, Justin. So I'll turn it over <laughs> unless you all have any uh, questions or comments for me. Oh, that was uh, no, that was excellent and 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 amazing and very informative information. And uh, I'm going to shift over uh, and ask uh, Nate a few questions here. And and Nate, when we're talking about the glaucoma treatment paradigm. Uh, it shifted a bit over the last five to six years for a variety of reasons, not only because of new medications, um, but also because of the advent of minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries. There's a lot of recent data that's come out on SLT and um, its usefulness as a first-line therapy. I'd love for you to comment on the current glaucoma treatment paradigm, how it shifted. And then we'd love to also hear your thoughts on glaucoma drug delivery, as I know you're heavily involved in, in that, that process as well. Well, thank you, Justin. Uh, yeah, you know, I, Ben, I really enjoyed uh, hearing uh, the uh, your review of all the pharmacotherapy uh, agents, and um, I uh, I'm very impressed with uh, your knowledge of all the details about uh, each of these drugs and some of the new things we have to keep our eye out for. Uh, we, of course, have our tried and true uh, algorithm, um, and and for me, look, the the light study just came out that showed that at three years, SLT is probably a better idea than medications. Um, but we also know that patients are hesitant to have SLT. And, you know, we're in a state with reimbursement right now in SLT where it, it's, it's um, you know, sometimes difficult for doctors to uh, champion that therapy because a patient put back and because we're, we're very busy. So I think we're still sort of comfortably uh, in the prostaglandin era. 
uh, where we're starting our therapy uh, with the foundation, which is the most efficacious uh, you know, group of agents. Uh, and I think it's nice that they're outflow agents because we do like to um, get fluid out through the trabecular meshwork. You talked about uh, Visalta, which uh, you know, has nitric oxide and can get some outflow. Of course, you talked about Rockbatan, but uh, it is also the case that the Mataprost has uh, on its label trabecular outflow as well as, prost as, well as the prostaglandin analog uh, mechanism. So, you know, we have the, the foundation of prostaglandin analogs. Uh, and then for me, uh, you know, switching right to a fixed combination uh, has been my algorithm. There are maybe particular situations where I might use a single agent, but the fastest growing class of therapy uh, in the United States over the past 10 years has been the fixed combinations. Um, you know, and we have, uh, of course, um, you know, uh, bromonidine, timolol, combigan, or dorzolamide, timolol, which used to be COSOPT. We've had a uh, dorzolamide shortage recently, and it's really now been about two years of inconsistent availability of dorzolamide. And so I have changed my algorithm uh, to avoid dorzolamide uh, whenever possible. And uh, if that seems a little drastic, uh, it, it is because I've, I've never been um, thoroughly convinced that dorzolamide was the most efficacious choice. But really, for me and my patient population, when they go to the pharmacy and can't pick up a medicine I've prescribed, it interrupts their care. And some of these patients have severe enough glaucoma to lose vision from you know a month without their dorzolamide containing fixed combination. So. Um, you know, so, but we still do like fixed combinations in general as a second line therapy. Uh, and the one thing I will say about the dorsolamide shortage is it really has brought home the value to me of branded therapies because uh, companies who um, stand by their products and support patients and physicians, uh, you know, wouldn't just have a drug disappear without explanation because we still don't know why the dorsolamide shortage happened uh, or when it's going to be entirely resolved. You know, one, one thing that we uh, may forget, but is always there as a safety net, is that the FDA is monitoring uh, therapies. And so if something's been on the market for 10, 15 years, that's 10 to 15 years of safety data. Um, and in fact, you know, if you have, uh, let's say you're using an agent, um, you know, and you notice a side effect that seems unusual, you can actually talk, you can report that to the rep or directly to the FDA. Uh, but their intention is to uh, report all that information so that if the FDA is seeing something with a branded therapy, uh, they'll, they'll investigate it. One, I'm a little cynical, but I say one of the reasons the FDA likes to investigate branded pharma is because, you know, if there's something wrong, you know, they'll, they'll find them uh, and the FDA will bring some revenue in, um, you know, through that mechanism. Uh, it, it's in a way it, it, it helps patients because, uh, you know, the FDA is incentivized to catch anything that's going on. Uh, of course, a less cynical approach would be to say that the FDA is a wonderful organization who's constantly looking out for uh, the benefit of all patients. As we kind of pull all these therapies together, of course, we're still um, trying to get as much pressure lowering as possible. 30% uh, sort of a starting point. I think we are now up to 50% of glaucoma patients are on two drops. Um, and that's because we're into early and aggressive therapy. You know, we're using OCT and, and other techniques to diagnose glaucoma earlier and earlier. But uh, as I'm sure you all know, now you're staring at a you know 42 year old patient who's got a little bit of glaucoma and you're thinking, wow, how are we gonna get through the next 40 years? 
Uh, and you probably then think, well, I better use some good therapies that are efficacious um, and that, you know, I know uh, kind of what I'm, what I'm getting into and I, you know, I need to get this pressure down as low as I can for this patient. So, um, you know, those are, those are sort of some of my thoughts. Um, I, I did want to uh, say that I really liked uh, the conversation about adding, um, you know, the final agent. Um, we, we were talking about uh, Ropressa in that case. Uh, you know, I have one of my partners, uh, happens to be an MD where I work, you know, said, hey, Nate, you know, I, I want you to be the one to add the last medicine. And I thought, you know, nope, <laughs> all good. <laughs> you can go ahead and add, uh, you know, whatever it is, your, your Ropressa. You know, I still use a fair bit of pilocarpine. You know, I'm not a proud man. Um, but uh, I think we are getting, interestingly, to a place where, you know, two or three bottles is really uh, max medical therapy uh, for the overwhelming majority of patients because we have so many options. So, you know, with that, um, I think, you know, the sort of message is here that, you know, we want to be uh, efficacious. We want to treat glaucoma early. We want to use potent therapies. Fixed combinations are growing. Um, we have sort of really nice, powerful agents that can get uh, glaucoma down um, under control quickly. You know, th that is one of my, when we talk about practice patterns, uh, you know, one of the questions I always ask myself is, is this patient going to take uh, is this a patient going to need surgery or is this patient medically controlled? And you may not know the answer when you first meet the patient. So then the second question is, how quickly can I find out the answer? Uh, and using sort of early aggressive therapy, fixed combinations earlier rather than single agents can help us find out. Because whatever it is, whether a patient's medically controllable or surgically, um, it's nice to, um, you know, it's nice to get there as quickly as you can. Uh, and then, um, Ben, there's just one final point that you made that I really uh, liked on Pomatoprost SR is that, you know, Bob Weinreb presented this data at ASCRS. And, uh, you know, Pomatoprost SR was studied as a therapy to be given every four months in the clinical trial. But what they found is that after uh, three treatments, so one year of Pomatoprost SR injections, 83% of patients then went another year without any therapy and while maintaining their pressures uh, in, in a reasonable range. Um, th this data was really, uh, you know, because if you look, when you stop a prostaglandin analog that's been used topically, you know, you maybe have a month of efficacy and then you're back to where you were. Uh, something about the sustained delivery may be changing uh, the anatomy or the physiology of the eye uh, in a more uh, meaningful and sustained way. Um, and so that really could be a game changer. Uh, it's kind of exciting to think that you might now finally be using treatments that will actually change the way the eye is functioning so it can function better on its own. Still more to be learned about that, but that was kind of an exciting uh, something to think about um, as we sort of head towards the future of glaucoma therapy. You bring up, uh, you know, you, really great information, Nate, and, and you bring up, you know, a good point when you talk about the future of glaucoma therapy, because we not only have new glaucoma medications, uh, drug delivery is exciting, but there's also some new technology that's, that's starting to show up or has been around for managing our glaucoma patients, diagnosing, monitoring. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any new technologies that you're excited about that you're using in your practice that some of our listeners may be interested in. Well, you, you had to know if you're going to ask me about, you know, my, my favorite technology, uh, you know, corneal hysteresis always comes up with me. 
Uh, I know you're a fan of that as well. Um, I have one uh, neat new new tool um, that I, I came across recently, which is called the Cat's Tonometer Prism, and this is a um, basically just a modified Goldman prism. So you're still using your Goldman tonometer, but you just sort of screw in this new prism. Uh, Sean McCafferty is an ophthalmologist slash engineer who redesigned the tip uh, to be basically biconcave instead of the flat Goldman tip with the idea of getting rid of some of the artifacts of hysteresis, corneal thickness, um, corneal curvature, and tear film thickness. And, uh, He's published on it. It's FDA clear, but it hasn't really been commercialized yet, but it'll be out soon. And uh, what I love about it is that, you know, you buy this simple new part, um, which is a very inexpensive replaceable part, uh, and you can start getting more accurate uh, pressure measurements. And I've been using it clinically, and there are some surprises. I mean, patients who uh, you realize that you've been treating their cornea and not their glaucoma, uh, but it's nice to know what the real pressure is. And I think the same with hysteresis. Um, you know, we, we want to know what the hysteresis is so we can know about the patient's glaucoma risk and so that we can get a better sense of their real pressure. And uh, all these therapies always interest me. Yeah, I agree. I've had uh, good experience with both those uh, devices, technologies that you've talked about, and, and they've definitely helped change the way that I treat my glaucoma patients and also helped in how aggressive I am with treating those patients as well. So I want to finish up uh, with posing a question to both of you. What are some pearls that you see or have for our listeners on how ODs and how optometry and ophthalmology can continue to work together to make sure that we're providing uh, great care for these patients? Because the facts are, if, if we don't work together to take care of these patients, the only people that are going to suffer are really the patients, not so much us, the doctors. So what are your guys' thoughts on that? And I'll start off by uh, letting Ben lead off, if that's okay. Okay. Well, this is something that uh, even in a state like Kentucky where we do SLT, I mean, I still have a fair amount of uh, uh, interaction and collaboration with my uh, glaucoma uh, surgeon in Louisville. And it's not always about something surgically. I think uh, we have mutual respect and we can, you know, bounce different things off of each other and see if it makes sense. Or sometimes you just need a reality check. But at the end of the day, um, I think that the biggest opportunity lies uh, in those patients, of course, that have cataract, that have glaucoma, that that could benefit from uh, having a procedure done at the time of cataract surgery. I think communication there is really important um, so that the uh, surgeon knows what medications the patient's been on, if they've had SLT, um, if they've had other types of uh, issues, inflammation, Etc. If there's pseudo exfoliation present, I think that the OD can be a, a you know a really good asset to set up for a successful outcome. Um, and I think it's also important that the surgeon communicate you know uh, the various options they're considering because a lot of these patients we've been seeing for 20, 25 years treating them, and now you know they're going to get one interaction with the surgeon, uh, and they're kind of like family after a while. Uh, and, and the last thing I would say is that uh, understanding what the expectations are for the procedure, uh, sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it's a, it's a tube or a shunt, and you know that there's, there's a good chance that things aren't going to turn out perfectly. And being able to communicate to both the patient and the referring doctor the expectations, things to look out for, 
reasons why you would want to see the patient back. Um, uh, you, you know, just the common things that I don't think there's a lot of that that happens in the community between optometry and, and, and glaucoma subspecialist. And uh, I think more of that's going to have to happen in, in the future. And, and the last little thing I would say, Justin, this is for, for you and your next generation. Uh, we've got to do a better job of being able to manage that primary case, that, that first medication, the prostaglandin. Uh, the foundational therapies, being able to look for progression, being able to manage all the glaucoma suspects that don't fit a textbook algorithm of what's supposed to happen. Um, I think as a profession, we're going to have to become a lot more confident in, in taking care of the lion's share of the, the primary glaucoma care that's out there and uh, using our ophthalmological friends to to help us along You know those unfortunate you know 20 to 25 percent of patients that just that just aren't going to do well without surgery and uh, to me i think that would make for the best practices the best outcomes and probably the best professional satisfaction on both sides yeah that's uh that's really great ben and i think you know paraphrasing a lot of the things you said communication is crucial and you mentioned that a few times and and i completely agree and then I also completely agree with you with your advice to, to myself and, and the future generation that we have to be comfortable with the technology we have available to us uh, to manage these patients. And we have to be comfortable and understand some of the new technology that's coming down the pipeline to manage and, and help these patients. Because it goes back to, again, the only people that are going to suffer will be our patients. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to have uh, Nate wrap up and your thoughts on this on this topic. Yeah, it's it's a great topic, and uh, I, I certainly agree, Dr. Gaddy, on all the um, things you brought up. We're in the era of tailored glaucoma therapy, and you know more and more now the patients I'll get will be, hey, this is a Zen patient, Dr. Radcliffe, you know, and um, it's important for me to know that the, the patient already knows what it is and is expecting, you know, kind of that conversation. Um, but it's really helpful then uh, that, that we all kind of know. Um, one of the problems we run into is, you know, I just changed my Zen technique, uh, you know, maybe six months ago. I do the Abex Turno now that has other changes along with it. And, you know, there's a responsibility for me to educate, you know, everyone who's helping me manage my patients um, or even who's sending them to me because, you know, I now am doing a lot more Zen. So I, I need to let uh, all, the, all the other doctors I'm working with know, hey, um, I'm thinking this is a great option these days, um, you know, just for example. Um, I love to see patients who are there for a second opinion, and I love to send them back and say, you know, we're not going to do the surgery yet. Let's try some other things. Um, and I think when those patients do ultimately come back and have to have, as, as we were talking about, some of these more serious surgeries, it's nice to know that we kind of gave it a shot of avoiding surgery. And so I think... Um, you know, there's there's no wrong time to send a patient because sending a patient, at least to me, is not guaranteed they're getting surgery. A lot of the times it's just sort of a wake-up call for the patient that they've got a serious disease. Uh, we go and try a few other things, and then maybe they come back, or even if it's a victory, if ne they never do. Um, so I like that. And again, that's all part of just being in constant communication, trusting one another, uh, and having an easy flow of patients uh, between, you know, myself and the optometrist that I care for patients with. Thank you to both of you for taking time today to have this discussion. Uh, it was a pleasure. I not only enjoyed the discussion, but I got to learn a lot along the way. 
And it's an exciting time right now in the landscape of glaucoma treatment. There's so many different options available. And uh, I look forward to continuing to, to have these discussions uh, with colleagues like yourselves. And thank you so much to, for everyone for listening.